See, for us, it's so important to recognize that we love because he first loved us. We can be all in because he is all in. This is what changes everything for us. So when you feel like you're not enough or you're not giving enough and you're drowning in those thoughts, remind yourself that Jesus is all in all the time. Now, I'm looking for my reader. There you are. I was like, I I, I couldn't find you. Barbara, come on up. Um, And as she's coming up, if you would stand with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. Thank you. Get out of your way. Okay. Good morning. Uh, We're in Acts 9, 19b through... 31. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who, ha- who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket." And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke in dispute against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. You may be seated. You can be seated. This morning, we are picking up right where we left off last week, um, and we come to kind of a transitional uh, phase in this. If you were with us last week, Pastor Ryan walked us through as Saul, uh, the, the persecutor, was coming to destroy those who were following in the way of Jesus and was met on the road by Jesus and had this radical transformation uh, as he was met, met by Jesus. Uh, and if you, if you weren't here and you didn't get a chance to listen, I encourage you to go back uh, to catch up with us. But today we come and we start to discover that there's something bigger afoot here, that there's a movement happening as, as we're making our way from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and we're starting to push towards the end of the earth, towards the Gentiles that are to come. And so all of this that's happening here is a little preparatory. 
But as I was reading through this and, and listening to Saul's account once again, uh, it, just, it just got me thinking. Because yeah. Saul's one of those guys that just kind of strikes you as he's like all in, all the time, all gas, no break, like just going so hard. And I know for me that I've, I've had plenty of moments, and, and I'm sure in this room we could all say there's been those moments we've had in our life where we feel like we've just got like nothing left. Like there's no gas in the tank and we're not sure how to even get up in the morning. It's, it's like when you have that week where work has just been terrible and you just you can't even believe that like you have to do what you're doing and you get home and you like fall into your seat and you realize, oh, it's only Monday. Like I, ha- I have to like keep going. Or, or that moment where your kids just decide to just have some fun with you and they take turns throughout the night keeping you awake so that you don't get any sleep. And then about the time your eyes close, you realize the sun's coming out and the day has begun and you don't have the option of just taking the day off or your to-do list. It, it keeps growing. You're adding things to it, but nothing's getting taken off of it. And you just start to feel this like mounting pressure all around you and everything you're doing to move forward seems to be pulling you back and then what makes it worse is while you're feeling like this you look over at someone next to you and there's the mom with nine kids and they're all dressed with their hair done and they look amazing and she's instagramming her life and she's like everything's wonderful while you're showing up with your daughter with graham crackers still in her hair and you're like what is going on or the guy who wakes up every morning at 4 a.m. so he can get in his workout and he's got to keep the four companies that he started last week going because everything's just going amazing and he's feeling great about life and he's smiling and you're like, I don't like you. That's how I feel. Now, I know I'm not supposed to say this because it doesn't sound right, but this for a long time is actually how I felt about the Apostle Paul. I'd read through all the accounts of what he was doing and I was like, how do you keep up with this guy? How can you possibly do what he's doing? He just is going all the time. He doesn't stop. He gets beat up. He like walks back in. He's like, do you want to hear more about Jesus? Like he just will not sit still. And for the longest time, I had such a hard time with this. Because he was, he was all in all the time. And I kept wondering like, what am I doing wrong? I found him exhausting. Until I started to to see what was behind this all-in, all-the-time mentality. And that's when things started to change for me. See, we pick up in chapter 9, verse 19. And it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, again, we saw his conversion with this incredible moment where uh, Ananias comes and, and, and helps him in this moment of need. And we just see the Lord meet Saul in such a radical, incredible way. And then we're told that immediately after this, after he's strengthened, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, I love this because what it's it's showing us is Saul was not seeing himself as above these other disciples. No, he was being pulled in and joining in these fellow students of Jesus and gathering with them. He was pulling from their strength, just as we still need community around us to pull from every day. And Saul, who was a student, a disciple of of the rabbi Gamaliel, who, who was revered in the synagogue a man of great wisdom and great understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. This is who Saul had been trained by. 
And now all of a sudden, in one quick swoop, Jesus comes and turns everything upside down. And all these scriptures that Saul has in his mind that he's been studying for so long, he's starting to see the dots connect in different ways that it's all pointing to Jesus, the one that he'd been looking for his whole life, this Messiah that was promised. He's saying all of scripture is now pointing to Jesus. And so he comes together with these disciples in this moment. But, but we're told in verse 20, and immediately, wasting very little time, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Again, Saul wastes no time. He was just blinded by, by Jesus, and now he's, he's, he's seeing, he's up, he's ready to go, he's eating some food after not eating for three days, and now he's like, let's do this. Let's go and proclaim who Jesus is. And see, he also had an advantage here, right? He knew the language of the synagogues, but also he looked the part of a rabbi. He was coming with credentials from the chief priest that he was supposed to be coming to take out this wayward branch of people that were following Jesus. And so when he showed up in a synagogue, they would look at him as like a rabbi who was visiting is like, yeah, we want to hear from you. So he had the ability to come in and, and start to teach in these synagogues, but pretty soon they realized, okay, this is a different Saul than we thought we were getting because he's, he's preaching that this Jesus is the Son of God. See, verse 21, it says, All who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? See, they find themselves scratching their head. They're like, he's, he's proclaiming this truth that he had come to root out. What is happening here? They even use this word that he had come. Is this not man who made havoc in Jerusalem that sought to seek and destroy those who are followers of Jesus? That word havoc, it's the same language that Paul would use to describe himself in Galatians 1.13. When he would say this, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted, persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul had an edge in why he was coming, and suddenly that's been flipped. And so those who are hearing him in the synagogues, they're starting to ask questions around, okay, what's this guy really about now? What's, what's really happening this guy had come to seek and destroy, and now he's proclaiming this truth. He's joining in with them. So, so just, just so we don't miss this, I want you to just hear what's happening so we can see the parallel of this. Saul comes into a synagogue, and he is proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, who Jesus, is, his identity is. And as he's proclaiming this with an authority, questions begin to arise around Saul's identity and who he is and where he's coming from and what's going on here. Now, hopefully, as you hear this, you start to feel some familiarity of like, I've heard this before. I've seen this play out before. Because when Jesus showed up in Luke chapter 4 into the synagogue and he opened that scroll in Isaiah and began to preach that this is who I am, everyone in attendance there was like, man, this guy's speaking with some serious authority and we want to pay attention to what he's saying. But isn't he just the carpenter's son? Do we really have to pay attention to him? And then they, they, they sought to just push him out to, to get rid of Jesus in the same way what we're seeing is Saul already Already in his life where Jesus said, you're, I'm going to call you. You're going to do great things for me. You're also going to suffer. Already Saul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus as he's going to the synagogues. And he's taking on the very same thing. They're going, who are you? And they're going to seek to destroy him in an instant. 
See, Saul the destroyer, Saul the persecutor, would now be the one who's persecuted. But for him, the message of Jesus was just too good not to proclaim. He couldn't help himself. So he's all in all the time, no matter the consequence. And we're told, verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul increased all the more in strength. I blame it on the fact that I read comic books as a kid growing up, but as I read this, this feels like an origin story of a superhero. Like, Saul increased all the more in strength, and he was mighty as he confounded the Jews. Like, there's something happening in this moment. And we asked ourselves, like, what, what does that mean that he grew in strength, that he just knew workout regime and he started looking good? No, that's not what's happening here. What, what Luke is drawing our attention to is that Saul is increasing in the strength of the Spirit. That Saul has been sealed by the Spirit, the very one who's a guarantee of our salvation in Christ, is residing in him, and he is leaning more and more into the Spirit, and he's increasing in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They would start to have these arguments with him, and he knew the Scriptures well, and so he starts drawing the dots for them, and they're just quiet. They have no ability to come back at him. His apologetics were just locked tight, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do in this moment? They had no answer to return to him. So verse 23, it says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That was their answer. We don't know what to do with this guy, so let's just get rid of him. Right? Let's just, we'll, we'll take him out and make some concrete shoes for him. It's going to be great. But their plot became known to Saul. Now, we have to take a little bit of a detour here because there's actually a lot happening in verse 23. And it just seems like, oh, like maybe a couple of days passed or maybe, you know, a day or two or a week at most uh, but we really need to see what's happening here in the timeline of the life of, of Paul. Because when we say how many days passed, actually it's, it's a pretty significant amount of time. Because what we want to do is align this with Paul's own experience where he talks around what happened once he began following Jesus in Galatians. That there was some significant time that he actually went from Damascus and went to Arabia and then he comes back to Damascus. And this is the time frame we're talking about right here. So I'm going to jump there. I'm going to put it up on the screen. But in Galatians 1, 15 through 17, Paul's own words, he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, he's talking around God, when God had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Now, he's going to say, I went away into Arabia, and it was, it was a three-year time frame that he goes into Arabia, and then he comes back. That's what's happening in verse 23 when it says, when many days had passed, right? right? We could just skip past that, and we think like, oh, this is just happening over a month. No, there's a lot of time that's unfolding here uh, in the midst of this. Now, there's, there's some debate within that in the actual timeline, and some scholars say there's some other possibilities. I tend to see that this is most consistent with what we see throughout all of Scripture in Paul's own words and what Luke is doing here. And so when many days passed means that he had, by this time, he'd gone into Arabia. He now had come back. And when he arrives back, uh, we're told that there's a plot to kill him. 
But this plot becomes known uh, to Saul. So beginning again, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So suddenly Saul is being lowered outside the city gates because everyone's watching. They're trying to get him. And actually, Saul would describe this event in his own words in, in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty two. And I know we're bouncing back and forth, but it's, it's helpful for you to see the full picture of this. This is how Saul describes that. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped by his hands. Now, he gives us a little bit more detail of what's happening here, that this governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize him. So he's got the Jews on the inside that are trying to get him because the way in which he's confounding them and teaching. And then he's got this, this king who is actually king of the Nabataeans, which was a, a province of Arabia. So whenever Paul went to Arabia, right, that three-year gap, when he was there, apparently wherever he goes, he just frustrates people. And so they're following him back and they're surrounding the perimeter and they're like under the authority of the king, we're going to get you and we're going to kill you. Now, Paul tells this story and he doesn't tell it as this like shining example of like, and then I heroically got lowered down in a basket. No, he's like embarrassed by it. He sees it as like a moment of humility because what we start to discover of Saul and Paul, and, and, and I know I use the names back and forth, but what we discover of him is that he's not one to back down from his enemies. So for him to be lowered down and to leave, I, I think that was really hard for him because he's a fighter and I think he wanted to stay and just like, well, come at me and see what you got. But he goes. But I, I want us to just jump back really quick. Acts uh, 9, verse 25. And I want us just to pay attention to what it says here. Because they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his what? His what? His disciples his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering them in a basket. You catch that? Saul's life is turned upside down by Jesus, but he's not going to go halfway in. He's not going to put his toe like in the water. He's not going to step on the first step of the pool and then like slowly get it. No, he's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this in the way in which Jesus has called me. And so he's taking the words of Jesus seriously. And when Jesus said, go into the world, making disciples of all nations, but Paul's like, I'm in. That's just what you do. So already we see he has disciples. He's already training and raising people up to release them so that more and more can come to know the truth of Jesus. Now, before we move from this section where he's in Damascus and he goes back to Jerusalem, I want us just to stop and say, what do we learn from this? Because Saul has some radical change occur in his own life, and he wastes no time in sharing the truth. He just gets after it. It goes all in, right? He's that annoying guy of like, I'm in. But is this just his personality type? Is he just like type A and so driven and, and that's why he's able to do this? And, and I don't want us to miss what's happening here. Because yeah, there's some gift mix within there that Saul was uniquely gifted to do certain things, but what he's enacting on and what he's living out is the call that's on each and every one of us. See, if we break down what his experience was after he comes to know Jesus, what did he do? He spent time with Jesus. He spent time with other disciples, and he made other disciples. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple. And yet we hear that, and we're like, that's extremely hard. 
But Saul spent time with Jesus, spent time with other disciples, and then he was intentional about discipling others. See, we hear this and we're like, well, I think that's just what he was supposed to do then. No, that's, that's the call on us now. And I think for a lot of us in here, we, we spend a lot of time with Jesus. Now, don't hear me saying that's wrong. You keep that. You cherish that. You hold tight to that time with him. Your, your time in the word, your time in prayer, your time with him where you're just listening as to what he has for you, you hold tight to that. You continue to carve that out. And if you're not doing that, I encourage you to do that. But I think where we start to get a little lighter is spending time intentionally with other disciples, other followers of Jesus. It's part of why I love the gathering when we come together because we get to see each other. We get to encourage one another. We get to do life with each other. But I, I got to tell you, it can't just be one day a week. We need more than that. We need others in our life walking alongside with us. And so I think we start to get, uh, we leak a little bit there. And then by the time we get to actually making other disciples, I think that's where we're like, ooh, I'm just going to stick with the first two. I think I can do that, maybe. And two for three, like, that's not too bad. That's Hall of Fame numbers in baseball. Like, more than, that's amazing. But we see that Saul just is like, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm all in. All the time. This is what this is going to look like for me. And that's why I would encourage you to join us March 10th, 17th, and 24th as we discuss what it means to be a disciple. How do you be a disciple of disciples? But a question for you is, is what does this look like for you? Are you having that similar experience to, to Saul? Are you intentional in your time with the Lord? Are you intentional in your time with others? And are you intentional and pursuing others. I'd encourage you to spend some time with that. Ask the Lord just to, to speak to you within that. And so we see Saul in Damascus. Now he's being lowered out of a basket. And, and where does he end up? He goes back to Jerusalem. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So time has passed. Saul shows up back in Jerusalem, and last he had left Jerusalem. He had papers in his hand to go and destroy the church, and now he's coming back saying, I'm a part of the church. And everyone's like, I don't believe you. The disciples are afraid, and they did not believe that he was truly a changed man. Now, haven't we all at some point in our life had somebody who's claimed like, no, I'm different and in the back of our head, we're like, yeah, we'll see. I've heard that before. We'll see how this plays out. And there's been times where even I, I, I've felt this tug where someone's celebrating like the Lord has just got a hold of me. And they're so excited. And I feel like my cynicism creeping up. And I'm like, I hope so. I hope this is real this time. See, but if we're, if we're going to be all in all the time, then we should not be surprised that Jesus can and does change the hearts of even the foulest of human beings. Then I, I feel like I'm on good ground when I say that because I know that he has changed me. 
And as Paul says in his own words, I am the worst sinner that I know. And why can he say that? And why can I say that? Because I know the thoughts that flash through my mind when I'm angry that I hope nobody else knows. We all know what contained inside of our own hearts and we experience that. We're like, ah, oh, if this ever got out, this would, this would ruin me. And yet even with all that, Jesus says, I'm all in on you. My grace is sufficient for you. And if his grace is sufficient for me, and if his grace is sufficient for you, his grace is sufficient for everyone. See, for the disciples, this is a huge turning point. But they find themselves afraid and unable to believe what they're seeing. The chasm was, was too great between what they knew of Saul and what he was proclaiming to be. They couldn't make up that gap until Barnabas shows up. Now, we've met Barnabas before, back in chapter 4. His name was Joseph. He was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He lives up to that name we're going to see over and over again. Barnabas just seems like a guy that everyone needs in their life. But Barnabas shows up in this moment, and he builds a bridge. Verse 27. It says, but Barnabas took him, he took Saul, took Paul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. See, again, what we see is, is Barnabas making a first step towards Paul. Everyone else was afraid of him. Why, why Barnabas wasn't afraid of him, we, we don't get that detail. But what we do see is that he was willing to come and put his arm around Paul and say, I'll vouch for this guy. I've seen what God's doing in his life, so you come with me. Let's share your story of what God is doing, and I'll walk in there with you. And it was so convincing what happened in this moment that Saul wasn't just seen as, as you know, oh, you can be under us. No, he was seen as an equal, a, a brother. And while this may not seem entirely significant, the apostles' acceptance of Saul's ministry would have a profound impact on the future of the church and the expansion of the Gentile mission. But what was the tipping point in this? Because I don't want us to just jump past Barnabas. See, Barnabas was one who was quick to extend the grace he had received to another. And Barnabas reminds us of the importance of not allowing cynicism to rule in our hearts. It would have been easy to, to keep Saul at a distance. It's unsafe. It's unwise to bring him in. And yet Barnabas was discerning enough to say, no, God is up to something here, and I will stand with him. Barnabas is all in all the time because of the grace of Jesus had extended to him, and now he's extending it to Saul. And so again, we see that this enemy becomes a brother. Now, what can we learn from Barnabas in this moment? I, I think there's a lot. But how many of us have ever walked into a room full of people, and we could be surrounded by people, but we feel completely and utterly alone? We're like, oh, just kind of scanning the horizon for like, do I know anyone? Do I, can I just, did they see me come in? Can I just walk back out? Right? But what happens when you're scanning that horizon, all of a sudden you lock eyes with someone you do know, and they start coming towards you. Suddenly you're like, oh, okay. 
it's going to be okay. See, this is what Barnabas was doing in this moment. There's an, an old Latin word, uh, pontifex. It's the word that was used to describe a, a priest or a pastor. And the reason I like this word is because not only was it used to describe a priest or a pastor, but it was, it was a word that means bridge builder. And I love that imagery that a priest and a pastor are to be a bridge builder because that's following in the footsteps of Jesus who was the ultimate bridge builder. He crossed the chasm of our sin in, in order that we could have life in him. He overcame on our behalf so that we could walk with him, have relationship with him. And this is the role of, of priest and pastor. And, and before you all are sitting there like, yes, that is your role. Remember, we are all called into the priesthood of believers. And therefore, we're all called, like Barnabas, to be bridge builders. To be ones who are in pursuit of the other, finding common ground to go, to, to lead people towards Jesus. See, the disciples had a, a turning point right here. They had to decide, were they going to burn this bridge with Saul or were they going to build it? And Barnabas was all in, all the time, and said, I'm going to build this. So my question for you in, in thinking through this is, are, are you in the business of building bridges or burning them? Because I'll be honest right now, there's a, a lot of flaming bridges that I see all over the place. It's actually really easy right now, really easy to justify too. Like, nope, just... But the kingdom of God is on the move and we're invited to participate in what he's doing to live and to extend grace and truth. And that doesn't mean a softness. No, there's a firmness to that. There's a strength to that. But that's not something we can just dip our toe into. No, we have to be all in on what God is doing. So we see Saul, this radical life transformation. He's all in. He's going forward. He's, he's got death threats coming against him. He comes down to Jerusalem. He's meeting with the disciples. They finally take him in because Barnabas' actions. And then in verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. Again, this becomes a pattern with Paul. Wherever he goes, people just begin to seek to kill him. He's the kind of friend you want to have around. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. So Saul begins to go back and forth, proclaiming the good news and argue the scriptures with the Hellenists. They, they don't have an answer for him either. So their thought is, let's just wipe him out. And so the brothers gather around Saul and they're like, listen, they're, they're coming for you. We're going to take you up to Caesarea Maritima, which you can actually go and visit today and see some of the ruins of some of Herod's works there. Uh, and they're like, we're going to ship you off to, to Tarsus, or you're going to go back home. That's where he was from. Now, I think it's helpful because sometimes we start to talk around these places, and we're like, they're just weird names. So I just want to show you the map so you get a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. And actually, this map will walk you through the whole progression of what, of what Saul experienced. So that little number one down there, that's him coming from Jerusalem all the way up to Damascus. And then eventually he went from Damascus out into Arabia, and then he comes back again. That's the number three. Comes back down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, they're trying to kill him again, so they take him up to Caesarea. And then now he's going to travel all the way up to Tarsus. And by the time he gets up to Tarsus, this is where it gets a little fuzzy. We don't have a real clear timeline. Some will say four years that he's there. Some will say ten years that he's there. But we know that he was there for a few years where he's back in his hometown. 
There's also some thoughts that he was planting some churches there because of just some things we read in Scripture that he was, he was busy. He, he wasn't just sitting around. If you know anything about Paul, uh, he was not one just to, to waste time. And so he's suddenly out of the picture. We, we get this build in, and then now he's gone. And it's all this setup because he's going to be back in chapter 11, and we're going to start to see him kind of take over the narrative as God uses him to push out into the Gentiles. But before we get there, we get one of these transitional statements. There's six of them throughout the book of Acts, and this is number four, and it says this in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. It's this beautiful moment where after this fierce persecution had come upon the church, all of a sudden they get to enjoy a season of, of peace. And being built up, there's a strength to the church. There's an expansion of it and the, the comfort of the spirit and moving in them and all walking in fear of the Lord. And what this shows us too is that the Lord was still being faithful even in the midst of the persecution. Even in the midst of the darkest days, there was still an expansion of his kingdom that was happening as more and more were coming to know Jesus. They didn't shrink back, but they continued forward in these moments. And we read this and we start to see that this is what it looks like when the church is all in all the time. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be safe. There's going to be trials. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be times of, of deep wounds even. But what we see is that God will continue to provide the means of grace to see it through. And so we see the kingdom of God is on the move. The church is expanding. Saul's been introduced, and we know that he's going to play a significant role in all of this. But then suddenly we come back in this transitional section before we get to chapter 10, and we get two stories of Peter. And I want to hit these really quick because this, this feels, this section actually feels a little bit like the end of a TV show that's just set up to like tease you into coming back next week to watch. Because that's what's happening here. All of a sudden, Peter, he's cruising around on kind of a tour of sorts, going in and out of different towns. And he comes to uh, Lydda. And you can see this town up here on this map. As Peter comes in, he's come from Jerusalem. He's in Lydda. Eventually, he's going to make his way over to Joppa. That's going to play a significance in the second story we're going to look at. But right now, he's in, in Lydda. And as he comes into Lydda, we're told in verse 33 that there he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and, and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter is stepping in on this, this tour of, of proclaiming the good news. He sees this man who's in need. He comes and he heals him. And what we see as a result of this, many start turning to Jesus. Now, Luke has a way of doing this where he'll capture a couple of miracle stories back to back. And often he does this even in his gospel. There'll be a man and a woman that are represented in both. What he's, he's trying to remind us all is that Jesus has come for all of humanity. That he's on the move. And so we see Aeneas, he's, he's healed, he's raised up, he's restored. But while Peter was still in, in Lydda, we hear of a, a woman in Joppa who's in need. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, 
which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now, a couple of things are worth noting here. Tabitha in the Greek language is Dorcas. Uh, what that means in our language is gazelle. Um, so Tabitha is gazelle in Aramaic, and Greek Dorcas is gazelle. And she's described as a woman full of good works and acts of charity. So she's getting a, she's getting a little bit more backstory to her than even Aeneas got in this. But Tabitha, what really stands out is she's described first and foremost as a disciple. She's a disciple, a follower, a student of Jesus. And I know this doesn't feel like a big deal to us, but it is. See, Luke is always making a point throughout his gospel account and throughout the book of Acts that we're never to see women as this secondary players in the movement of God. But they play pivotal roles. They're vital to God's work and vital to God's kingdom. And he's careful to include them in these stories because what we start to see with Tabitha's story is that she was one that was caring for others. This good work that she was doing, by the time that Peter shows up on the scene, Tabitha has died. And we're told that when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Essentially, they're showing, look, she made these clothes so that I could be covered. She took care of us. She, she played a significant role in the church here in Joppa. And they're weeping because the loss that they felt was so great. And so Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Peter comes into the room, kneels down and prays. And he says to her in Aramaic, Tabitha kum. Tabitha kum. Tabitha arise. These words carry familiarity, just a, a syllable difference. In Mark 5.41, it would be Jesus who would come into the room of one who was lame dead, and he would say, Talitha kum, arise, my little one. We see Peter is following in the footsteps of Jesus, imitating Jesus, down to the very miracles that he's performing, but not because Peter's saying, don't you see what I'm able to do? No, because Peter's saying, don't you see what Jesus is able to do? Don't you see that he's on the move, that he's coming for each and every one of us? And he would call this woman to rise, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit and to the glory of God. And as with the, the first healing of Aeneas, the same thing is said here, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. These miracles were turning people's attention not to the ones who they were coming through, but to the ones who was giving them in the first place, to the Lord. In verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now that little last part, that little detail, Luke does not give us details on accident. He says, Simon, a tanner. He's, he's setting us up. You see, a tanner was someone who would, who would strip animals of their skin. They would work in leather. This was dirty work. It was seen as unclean work. And here he is staying with someone who had a profession that was seen as unclean. See, what we start to piece together and what's happening in this chapter 
in these accounts is, is we're seeing the movement of God. The movement of God towards the unclean to make it clean. The movement of God towards the broken to bring out the beauty. The movement of God calling all people to himself. And next week, we're going to see this play out in a significant way with Peter and Cornelius. And we're going to see that God is for everyone everywhere. And I want to encourage you to be back next week as we jump into that. My friend Steve is going to be here to teach that passage. I'm excited for what he's going to bring. But for us today, we're going to stop. We'll leave the cliffhanger there. That was a little teaser into what's coming next week. But for us, what we want to recognize in this moment is that God is on the move. That he's coming towards us. So what do we take from this? Do we just need to try harder? Do we just need to be more like Saul and be be stronger? Do we need to be all in all the time, eat granola? That's always my litmus test for people who are disciplined. Like if you eat granola all the time, I don't know why that is. It's one of those weird things I have. Some of you are like, I eat granola. Why are you talking about me? I love you. But there's an importance of being all in all the time. And we see in these actions of of Saul and Peter that God is forming something, but more importantly than us being all in the time, what we're seeing in the actions of God is that he's all in all the time. That he's coming for us. That he's come for us. That we may have life in him. And throughout the book of Acts, We see this continual reminder that, yes, there's Saul and there's Peter and there's John and there's Ananias and there's Stephen and there's Philip and there's Tabitha. There's all of these names, and they all play a role, an important role, but they are not the main characters. They are not who is on center stage in all of this. Just as each one of us in this room, we play significant roles in our communities and those that we walk through life with, but we are not to be the center of our life. And I know that sounds strange, but it's always to be Jesus who stands center stage. For it's his work that brings life. It's his work that makes all things possible. And this is what we see. That as much as we want to be all in all the time and we we want to earn this and make this happen, we can't. We're going to fail. We're going to fall. We're going to falter. And we have two incredible examples of Saul and Peter who are men that we watch fail in epic fashion. But thank God that God is in all the time. That he has all gas, no break, takes no days off in his pursuit of us. And what we see in Acts are the lives of those who receive this grace, that step into this unmerited favor, this gift of God, that in return, they don't try and earn it. No, they give all of themselves. They're all in all the time as an act of worship and obedience and display of their love for him. See, for us, it's so important to recognize that we love because he first loved us. We can be all in because he is all in. This is what changes everything for us. So when you feel like you're not enough or you're not giving enough and you're drowning in those thoughts, remind yourself 
that Jesus is all in all the time. Begin there. Grab hold of that truth. Believe that. And knowing that he's all in on you, turn around go all in on him all the time. Amen? You pray with me. Father, as we look, um, we listen and we hear these accounts. Lord, it's so easy to put people in categories that we don't find ourselves in. And yet what we see in your movement towards us is that you've made a way. God, that's so often the things that we put upon our own shoulders um, are not things that you have given us. And so, Lord, may we remember your words, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. So all who are heavy and weary, Lord, would we turn to you and trust in you that you who are the ultimate bridge builder, that you have paved the way where there was no way in order that we could have life in you, life abundantly, not life in comparison to the person next to us that we think has it all together. No, life that you have designed for us in relationship with you. So would we fix our eyes on you, trusting that you are enough and Lord, would we trust in your love you who saw Saul destroying your church, persecuting your church, and you called him to yourself as your own. Offering forgiveness and life to him. You who saw Peter as he denied you in, in your trial, in your, your moment of need, and yet you restored him and called him to life. God, there's so many things that each of us carry and hold on to that we allow to define us. But Lord, would, would those pale in comparison to your voice and your actions in our life, that you are all in, that you gave all that we can have life in you. And so would we turn towards you, trusting in that truth living in your grace and responding in obedience to your word and responding in a life of worship toward you. Jesus, we love you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.